this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Season 5's wrap-up episode of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad. We've had some amazing guests this season. We welcomed actor-comedian Rami Youssef, journalist Hala Gorani, entrepreneur and political commentator Ali Shehebi, luxury designers Munez and A. Abdel Rauf, Meta's Ferris Hakked, as well as writer and radio broadcaster Selma Al-Wardeni, Chef Hussein Hadid, and architect Omneya Abdelbar. Our wrap-up episode has traditionally become a place for a look back at the season's highlights, as well as a look forward to what's to come next season. This episode covers that, but we also go into a bit more detail about my own life and my own twists and turns. Shirag Desai, the show's producer, is asking the questions today. So actually, I want to take us back to like <laughs> this conversation we were having a couple of days ago, where I just very casually mentioned that episode 50 is coming up and it kind of caught you by surprise. So that's my way of saying welcome to like the season wrap up. Yeah. Hi, Shirag. <laughs> um, and uh, I cannot believe we're at the end of season five. Really, it's quite unbelievable. I know. But it took me completely by surprise when you said that, because I guess partly because we, we do this in, 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 in like increments of eight episodes at a time. And it's two seasons a year. Yeah. And I, the number just floored me when you told me 50 episodes. I couldn't believe it. You know, the way you put it just now sounded almost like, yeah, you know, we're doing two seasons. But actually, it's like, no, we're doing two seasons a year, right? We, we've got that consistency out the door. Yeah. We're already working on the next season. So it's it's also a testament to all of that coming together, which I think is important to remember and celebrate. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think uh, consistency is the key across everything. And uh that's kind of been my mantra the last few months on across different parts of my life. Um, and so as we as we tend to do, I mean, at the end of the season, we sit down, we kind of recap a little bit of the season. We look at some commonalities and some interesting things, things that have come out of it. Um, this time around, I feel like, you know, uh, not that there weren't other themes there were, but I think there was one kind of theme that kind of hit almost everybody. And it, it was so prominent that you started calling it out in your interviews just organically. And, and just to sort of put that for context, is the, the, it's the concept of identity. Um, and that identity, of course, comes in different formats also. So, you know, there is the discovery of identity. Um, uh, there is sort of the exploration, exhibition of identity or celebration of it. So you think of someone like like Rami, right, where he's using it as a way to express his show. It's using, you know, all of that. Uh, or or Omnea, for example. Uh, but then you look at also the sort of the the debate of identity. Right? So you look at someone someone like Selma, who spent a lot of her life trying to connect with it and trying to find it. 
Uh, and then you have someone at the other end, like like a Ferris, who, because of his exposure to so many different cultures and stuff, is actually very settled in his identity. So tell me, Ferris, we've had a lot of guests recently who have really been questioning a lot where they're from. Um, uh, w- you know, what does it mean to be from somewhere when you've lived so many in so many different places around the world? So it's interesting that you have that that foundation is still very strong in you. It's a defense mechanism. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely, I think I think if you if you don't recognize and own who you are, then you're exposed to people telling you who you are, and that's and that's a very dangerous thing. I think that this issue is very much. A generational issue. So, you know, uh, Salma, Elwardani, and Rami, I think, are similar in age. Mm-hmm. And they interpreted uh, identity through the prism of religion. Mm-hmm. Hala and Ferris and myself, I'll put myself in that category as well, being a bit older, um, I think we see it much more in the prism of where we're from, what country we're from. What is our um, our ethnic background, if you like, for a better word? And so I think these are questions that are really important. And I think they're important regardless of your age. So, you know, we spoke about the intergenerational thing. But the questions of identity, you know, we carry that with us throughout our lives. And, you know, the first question any new person will ask you is, where are you from? Mm-hmm. You know, that that's, you know, you have to have, you have to come to terms with, with that answer. You know, what do you say? Since you mentioned you, and I think that was something I wanted to also talk about in terms of how you feel about your identity, right? Because you were someone who, as you said, lived abroad for a lot of your life and sort of found this pull, as we've discussed before, uh, to Cairo. Uh, and I remember you told us last time that when you came, as in this last sort of iteration of you coming because I know you came and went in between. <laughs> you were just like, I'm just not even going to look at that return flight. Uh, so how how do you today, perhaps, and especially with now that you've had all these conversations, like how do you feel about your identity? Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword, I think, for me. And I think it's still um, a, a kind of a contradiction or it's still a bit in flux. So there are moments when I um, I feel very... Egyptian, and there are moments when I feel very foreign. As you remember from our first conversation, and we'd had this conversation in our wrap-up episode in season one, mm-hmm. which is now going back a long way. Yes, it was almost 50 episodes ago. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, um, I'm i fully Egyptian, um, but I uh, was born and raised uh, outside of Egypt, and I moved to Egypt at the age of 28. So I had I was a fully formed um, human being by then, <laughs> um, and I you know I was I was born in America and then uh, spent my young formative years in Saudi Arabia in Jeddah, and then from there I moved to the UK uh, to boarding school at the age of twelve and stayed on uh, for all of my uh, teens and twenties, um, and then I came back to Egypt on a, um, after university for a year but didn't find myself um, happy to be living in Egypt. I found it a very difficult place to live at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, having said that, Egypt has, has always been in my blood on, on, every, on every level. I w- would come back for holidays all my life. I have a huge extended family um, that w- are very important to me. Uh, and as an only child, that connection was really, really important. You know, that when I moved here 20 years ago, uh, settling down here was very, very easy on that level. You know, I had a network already established. Right. And so I didn't feel like a fish out of water um, 
to a large extent. But on a larger level, um, I think my my way of thinking is is still very foreign. It's very hard to be uh, to think differently to the place you're living in, um, because there are lots of frustrations that come with that. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you bring a know-how in a certain way that uh, is advantageous. Um, but I I think on some level, I found that the experience of being abroad all my life. I think subconsciously I didn't want that for my children. Okay. I'm very happy that my children don't have that same sort of um uh nomadic if you like for for want of a better word mm. nomadic upbringing that I had in a way because having that grounding and being sure of where you're from and who you are and being in one place uh for the entire you know period of your childhood i think is priceless and i think it gives you a very strong sense of self and i think it allows you to be very confident in who you are um and and that was something that um you know uh, my husband and i were able to provide our children and and you know as time has gone by i i found that to be a real advantage and a real um privilege for them um you know they they are exposed obviously to uh, you know different parts of the world but having that sense of truly being from one place i think for them is is a very good thing and it's something i'm very happy that they have yeah that's really interesting actually uh, so you know for me like just for context like i come at this from the kind of the opposite way um i'm i'm indian in terms of origin but i grew up here in Dubai. Yeah, in Dubai. So I didn't have that sort of question mark almost. So when I went to the US for example, and that's like the easiest example I can give you. If someone asked me where I was from, I would always say Dubai. Um I almost never said India. Uh because I didn't have we went a lot right by the way. So we we used to go during the summer vacations and all that. We visited a lot, but I never felt at home there actually. And this is true among so many of my friends uh and I I don't mean just Indian friends, right? Any expat friends, people who grew up in this region um who always feel this is home. Mm. my center was here yeah. it still is actually in a lot of ways uh, the only difference is that yeah i've also sort of reconciled with my indian identity and it's kind of become a part of me now a lot more strongly but that happened in my adult life it didn't happen in my childhood so in my childhood it was very clear for me that the ue was home so what you describe now about you know having spent some time there and didn't feel like a fish out of water uh, that happened to me only in the last sort of decade plus where i started spending mm. a lot more time mm. there that allowed me to get sort of get my own footing so now i don't mind going there at all and i find that as a contrast to some of my friends i also compare myself for example i have a lot of friends who are half this and half that and and half egyptian and half something else yeah. to a certain extent they're kind of given a bit of a free pass because you know people who live in egypt will say oh well they're half this so it's okay that they are a bit different whereas someone like me who's fully egyptian um i i feel like i have more in common with them than i do with you know a lot of people who are fully egyptian because there is that other side which maybe doesn't you know doesn't come out or doesn't appear you know visually mm. but is is very much that other half of me you know and uh and it can be challenging it can it can be a a little tricky to 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 maneuver sometimes One of the things I think that's also come out in this season quite a bit is the impact of people around us. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that, right? Like in terms of um 
the kind of impact the people around you had on you? Yeah. So, so for me, I mean, you know, um, one huge influence in my life um, has been my aunt, my maternal aunt, my mother's sister, Nadia Yunus. Um, we were extremely close. Um, I even lived with her for a couple of summers when I was working um, at the United Nations uh, in, in New York. Um, Nadia um, passed away in 2003. She was one of the victims um, of uh, the, one of the first bombings in Iraq uh, post the invasion. Uh, she was a chief of staff to the head of the mission of the UN in Iraq. Um, and she was one of 22, I believe, who passed away then. Um, and uh, she was such a force of nature. Everyone who knew her um, remembers that about her. And she had she was a lifelong career diplomat at the UN. So she was the um, um, spokeswoman for the UN UN Secretary General in the early 90s, I believe he was there, Perez de Cuellar. And that was at the time of the first Gulf War. And so she was very, um, you know, constantly jetting into see Saddam Hussein with him and trying to persuade him that, you know, it's not a good idea to invade Kuwait and all of that stuff. It was, a, you know, she's had a really varied career. And then she took a sabbatical and, and went to Kosovo and worked with Dr. Bernard Kushner there, who was the ex-French foreign minister, who is also the founder of Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders. And she discovered an entire other side to herself, which was the idea of being in the field. She absolutely loved it. And she came to it very late in life. Most most people who work at the UN do that first and then... And then settle down. And uh, settle down to a yeah. career in headquarters. And she did the opposite. So she discovered this taste for the adventure and the idea of being uh, in, the, in the midst of everything where things are really happening. I, I worked with her in the communications department and it was fascinating. And at the time, I wanted to follow her footsteps. I wanted to to join the UN and and be like my aunt. I mean, we all have those role models. And she very quickly said to me, don't do it. She said when I, when she joined in the early 70s, it was idealistic. We, you know, they were they all thought they were going to change the world, that you know, peace was in their reach and all of that stuff. And she very quickly became disillusioned and and said, listen, it's not a very, you know, it's not a career for you. Um, find something else to do. So I decided not to do that. But um, but I went into a, a, a sort of a, you know, something similar, which was journalism. So, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, I, mean, like, I don't, I feel like you didn't take her advice all that seriously. You kind no, of took it. No, no. Okay, yeah, maybe not literally this, but I'm going to stay in this exactly. area, which is interesting. Yeah. But then um, the Iraq war was hotting up. And at the time she was working at the WHO in Geneva, uh, and she wanted to join the mission in uh, Baghdad. And I'll never forget this. Uh, she came to Cairo in April 2003, and we were all here, the whole family was here, and we were begging her not to go because we in the Middle East were already seeing the the drum rolls of war that were starting, that America was pushing mm -hmm. in for so much for it. And she went in June of 2003, and she lost her life in August. It was so beyond shocking to to have been, uh, what's the word? To have been um, affected by a, such a violent death um, of a family member who was so close, 
that I don't think any of us have ever gotten over it. Um, but her death did make us decide that it could not be in vain and it could not be a wasted life. So we decided to um, raise money uh, amongst uh, family and friends to create um, a fund in her name that's been housed ever since at the American University in Cairo. And uh, that last, we've, we've had this lecture series um, up until this year. So it's been about uh, 18 years that we've been running it now. With it, the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war, we've decided it's time now to move forward in a different capacity. And so now the fund is flipping into a scholarship. So there'll be now the Nadia Yunus Scholarship, also at AUC, and we'll be funding uh, an undergraduate, uh, a, por a partially funded, an undergraduate, um, uh, an Egyptian young person to come to AUC and and be able to study. Um, and right. and as you know, college fees around the world are so astronomical now that um, this kind of uh, scholarship is is very needy and very um, and very timely. So we're we're very proud of of how. The fund has evolved. It also touches for me on this concept of like legacy, right? Because it's not something she created, right? It's not she created this lecture series or this fund and then you guys continued on. But this became the unifying moment for you to say, actually, here's how we want to uh, maintain her legacy and then celebrate her legacy. And I also think, you know, if you can pay it forward, I think you have a duty to do that. Um, you know, I've been very lucky in my life. My family have been as well. And uh, you know, we feel that, um, you know, we come from a very, very poor country. And if we can help in any way, then then it's our duty to do so. Um, you know, I come from a political family. Um, and we've always had that in us to to give back in some way. So um, and I think it's a fitting tribute to her. Um, and I think it's very appropriate. We'll continue our conversation, including what's in my cultural inbox, right after this break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to our season wrap-up episode where I'm being interviewed by my producer, Shirag Desai. Let's, let's continue the, the pivots. Let's talk about uh, one of your... What, what was another pivot, perhaps, that um, ha has left and continues to leave uh, an impression uh, or, or an impact on you? Yeah, so when I was uh, 34, I'd, had, I'd just had given birth to my second child, and I was diagnosed with uh, lymphoma, with cancer. 
um, seven weeks after he was born. I can talk about it now with a lot of sort of hindsight and perspective mm-hmm. and a sense of um, calmness. But, you know, at the time, it completely threw us all off, as you can imagine, in our entire uh, concept of uh, of life got completely um, turned upside down. Yeah. Um, as I said, I was only 34. Thank God my son was well. He was not impacted at all by it. But it, um, it completely stopped me in my tracks. Um, I had been um uh, you know working before that i had you know was a very active mother um and it just completely stopped me and it took me an extremely long time luckily i got amazing medical treatment i did 6 months of chemotherapy and uh, and was fine after that uh physically fine but of course these things leave a, a scar uh, emotionally, mentally. And I think also in your case, I mean, it wasn't just about the the shock of it, but you, like you said, you had just given birth to your uh, son. And so you are, you're sort of mentally preparing for this sort of recovery phase and this like joy and all of that. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a total curveball, right? Like it's Absolutely. one of those things where they, where they say like, like life throws something at you. It's, it's literally that, right? It, it comes out completely out of the blue. Yeah. The, it was just so um, shocking on, on so many levels. But, you know, like everything, when I feel that when you don't know the, the, you don't have fear, I feel, when you're doing something for the first time. And when it's so serious, you just get on with it and you just do it. And so those six months yeah. of treatment uh, I was juggling a toddler and a, a newborn, and I just went at it like a bull in a china shop. I didn't think. I just did what was asked of me. I was robotic about it, and I put all my emotions on a shelf, and I just ignored my ignored how I felt about yeah. everything. And and it was only afterwards when I started to um, settle into, you know, back to a normal kind of life that I realized how emotionally exhausted I had been from it all. And it took a very long time to get over. Um, and it, it's it's a very difficult thing for someone to deal with. And I think being so young as well, um, it, it's very shocking when someone that young um, experiences something like that. Because, you, uh, you know, when you're in your mid-30s, you don't expect your life to suddenly literally stop. It's massively impactful, yeah. But you know what's interesting, Shirag, is I think that experience, and then and then on top of that, you know, much, much, much later, the experience of COVID and lockdown. And, yeah. you know, I, for one, in now I feel that, you know, life is short, do what you want to do, chase that dream, do that, go for that, go after that job, um, buy that dress, uh, take that trip. You know, I'm very much in that mindset right now where I don't want to put off anymore what I would have put off at a, at another time of life or had COVID not happened. And I think COVID has really been a big pivot point, not just for me, but I think for a lot of people. And it's a pivot point that we can all relate to. Whereas, you know, my cancer diagnosis was a very uh, insular. Yeah, personal, but it was personal to you and the people around you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a private uh, struggle with all these layers of things that I've been through. I'm, I, I've, I'm afforded or I have been afforded the ability to be much more empathetic with people 
Okay. And much more able to see like a 360 of, a, of an issue. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm able to put myself in people's shoes much more than I would have at a, as a younger person. Okay. There's a sort of a, um, a communication opening there, I feel, that these experiences have, have given me. Okay, so uh, before we, we close out, and of course we have to do a little bit of housekeeping in terms of what's coming, but maybe let's talk uh, first about your cultural inbox. All right. Oh, okay. You're, you're pulling out notes. Cool. I am. I have notes. <laughs> so I am in the middle of um, a podcast from BBC Radio 4 called The Front Lines of Journalism. And it's um, by a very well-known foreign correspondent called Jeremy Bowen who many people will know mm-hmm. because he's covered the Middle East extensively. And I'm really enjoying the series. I'm sort of halfway through. And the reason I like it is because he's talking a lot about um, the ethical elements of journalism and fake news and how do you remain impartial? What's the difference between impartiality and objectivity? So these really sort of big kind of philosophical questions relating to the industry that I'm quite okay. fascinated by. And so it's really interesting to hear his perspective. He's a very outspoken journalist and he doesn't remain quiet, which is very unusual about for a BBC reporter who are always meant to sort of conform and, and toe the BBC line. And so, right. and he brings on really interesting guests as well um, to, to discuss it. So it's, it's great. So I'm really enjoying that podcast at the moment. Uh, I will definitely like, uh, I'll definitely check it out. But also leave a, as, as we say, we'll leave a link in the show notes because I think that's, Yes, that's a good one to do that. Here's a question. Do you think you would be a great guest for that show? Uh, no, I don't think so because, I mean, I think what I do is too light for him. In another life, in another life, I would have chosen to be a foreign correspondent. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kid you on that. That would have been my ultimate dream job. And when I was a fresh graduate, I actually applied for the BBC um, journalism training course. I didn't make the cut, mm-hmm. and I think if I had been accepted, uh, you know, I would have been, you know, in, in Ukraine by right now. So um, that's another another side of me that I, I, you know, one of those sliding door moments, you know, where one life would have led you somewhere and one, you know, the other life led you somewhere else. So that would have been my sliding well, door moment. Well, I'll just moment. leave you by saying that this life led you to what I did next. So <laughs> <there you> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. What else? So I'm going to share with you now my, my books. So, um, I've, uh, I've just started literally last night, uh, a new book that I picked up at the local, um, my favorite bookstore in Cairo, which is called Diwan. Um, mm-hmm. and it's called the lost manuscript. And I'm not going to talk about the book at all. I'm just going to read to you, um, something at the very beginning, which basically sums up my attitude to books. So it says to all the books we've read, to all those we have yet to read, because like sandmen, they sprinkle into our daily lives a few words or phrases that work their way into our subconscious over time and change us, discreetly but irrevocably. And I just thought that that was just exactly my my attitude to reading. <laughs> and I want to share with you the actual book that I've just finished, and it's the third time I read it. Okay. I am not a, a self-help guru kind of person at all. I am a, a very much a, a fiction, uh, literary kind of reader. But okay. this book 
is just phenomenal. It's called Better Than Before. Um, and she's an American writer, um, Gretchen Rubin. She wrote a book called The Happiness Project, which was really, uh, I think it was her first bestseller. And this book is fantastic because I've been trying to um, create better habits for myself. And I've been trying to break bad habits and formulate a new way of living, a better lifestyle, a healthier lifestyle. And okay. this this book really helps put that into um, into practice. It's it's helping me put things into practice that you know on paper sound great, but then how do you actually do it? How do you get those uh, uh, that hour of exercise a day if that's what you want to do? Mm -hmm. How do you um, you know, lose those five extra kilos? How do you stop smoking if you're a smoker? Whatever it is you're trying to do, um, you know, there are there are tools to do them uh, with. And and this book is is what I'm using to help me do that. So, you know, there's my self-help guru uh, piece of advice for you. <laughs> not a turn. I thought this podcast was ever no, going to take. No, I know, I know. It's not me <laughs> at all, but it's a great book. Fascinating. Well, um, I, that sort of brings us to the end of season five wrap up, man. Like, <laughs> it's funny, you know, last season we were talking about how intense the season felt because we were kind of, uh, feeling like it was a bit last minute in terms of some of the things that had happened, just the way it, it panned out. Uh, even though the season hasn't been that way, we've been a lot yeah. better planned. Things have been, there've been a lot of other things we've done as well. Of course, you were, uh, at the age of fashion week, uh, and yet somehow it's flown by. It really has. Yeah. So obviously uh, it should come as no surprise that we'll be back again <laughs> by the uh, by September for season six. So it's, that's exciting. Um, I think the other thing also I want to mention uh, just really quickly um, is that if if you're listening to this but you don't know, we we do these bonus episodes now. We've been doing them for a couple of seasons. Uh, which is uh, a member benefit, as we call it. So you can subscribe to that uh, both uh, on the website, but then also uh, in Apple Podcasts if that's your preferred player. Uh, and it's all the extra content, right? All these additional parts of the conversation that don't make it to the main episode uh, or are just interesting tidbits and, and pieces. So we're going to keep doing that. I think it's interesting that uh, there is A, the space that we can create where we can you can get to know our guests even more. Uh, that community is growing really fast, has grown really well this year for us so far. Uh, so we're quite, quite, quite happy about that too. And we're going to be bringing you um, fresher takes as well. So we're changing things up a little bit in terms of um, the structure of the interviews. And we're also uh, going to come up with a, we're also going to be bringing you a surprise. And so stay tuned for that. We'll be yeah. available on, on additional platforms as well. Um, so that's an exciting uh, stage for us. And of course, uh, as of today, you can already follow us on Instagram, on Twitter. Uh, you can sign up for email updates from our website, which I think is uh, also, again, we, you know, we've been kind of growing that community. Uh, as I mentioned already, you can subscribe for additional content, additional things. We'll keep sharing more things, of course, between now and by the time we're back for the next season. Uh, so yeah, we'll look forward to each and every one of you joining us then. Thanks, Shirag. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back with new episodes in early September. Until then, you can catch up on our previous episodes and follow us for updates on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. See you soon.